Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Headlines mark the one-year anniversary of the tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer. Uh, No words, no words as we look back on that. A year later, we we look back on an interesting year of unrest, of violence, of protests, as well as some reform, some unity, some good discussions and debate, and much, much more work left undone in our country and in our community. So it's time on this one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd to go beyond the headlines. So let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. And today we want to begin with uh, this area where we have to think again uh, regarding criminal justice reform, police reform, and uh, very pleased to be joined today by Utah Senior Senator Mike Lee. Senator, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thank you. It's good to be with you as always. Uh, and there's a there's a number of things I think that the uh, public and the national media in particular have sort of conflated together. Obviously, on the uh, anniversary of the death of George Floyd, uh, there's a lot of talk about police reform uh, going on. There's also a, a dire need and something you've been working on for a decade now in terms of criminal justice reform. And I want to kind of break those down a little bit today. Um, and so let's let's start with the the criminal justice reform piece. This has been a big part of your legislative agenda and bipartisan work uh, between you and Cory Booker, uh, Senator Dick Durbin, Pat Leahy, and so on. Uh, give us a little update first on uh, on criminal justice reform. Criminal justice reform generally refers to the broad category uh, that includes things like sentencing laws. The, the, the amount of time that people are required to be sentenced. And it often also includes uh, the, the terms and conditions of imprisonment. Um, this is all part of a bigger, broader system. And so anytime we're re- reforming in any way the way we enforce our criminal laws, that can be said to be criminal justice reforms. One of the things that we need to still pass in the area of criminal justice reform is a reform of something that I refer to as mens rea. It's a, it's a Latin legal term that just refers to the state of mind that's required by someone in order to commit and then be convicted of a crime. This is necessary because we've got to make sure that overzealous bureaucrats 
and, and other law enforcement personnel don't punish people for unwittingly violating what in some cases can be fairly technical violations based on conduct that those individuals had no reason to believe was wrong or that conduct they didn't even intend to engage in, regardless of whether they knew it was criminal. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Our Lost Constitution, where I talked a little bit about what can happen when you lose sight of this. And I tell the story of a father and son, um, a guy named O.C. Mills and his son, Carrie. They bought a wooded plot of land. They decided to build a house on part of it. After the building began, the U.S. government went after them. It prosecuted them for violating the Clean Water Act, and they were sentenced to two years and nine months in prison. This is one of many, many issues where yeah. this comes up. A few years ago, we asked the Congressional Research Service, an agency whose job it is to, to answer these kinds of questions from lawmakers. We asked them how many federal criminal laws are on the books. CRS came back and said something stunning, which was essentially the answer is unknown and it's unknowable, but there are at least 300,000 separate criminal offenses, because wow. a lot of these are determined by federal regulation, by government bureaucrats somewhere, and, and not even directly by Congress. Wow. That's uh, uh, critical work going on there. And again, bipartisan work. I know uh, you've worked with a lot of your colleagues across the aisle uh, to work on that in terms of criminal justice reform. And, and those are vital things. And again, a lot of times we don't think about those uh, until... Until it's too late, until we're in the middle of those kinds of things. Uh, but that's a great example and a great way to help us frame uh, how that actually plays out in, in real life. Uh, I want to shift gears now a little bit and, and, uh, and get to some of the police reform conversations that are going on. Uh, of course, your friend uh, and colleague Tim Scott from uh, South Carolina and Cory Booker from New Jersey uh, have been working on some things around police reform. Uh, seems to be stalling just a little bit there. What's uh, what's your sense of what's happening uh, in uh, in the Senate? You know, there's uh, a lot of appetite to bring about uh, police reform. We certainly have jurisdiction over federal law enforcement officers, federal law enforcement programs. I believe it's important for us to deal with that which is federal and to make sure that we don't step on the toes of state and local law enforcement agencies. One of the reasons for this, we held a, a hearing a few months ago about this in the Judiciary Committee, and we discovered that especially in poor communities and in communities where there are a lot of racial minorities, the more you take away the accountability of the local officers by, among other things, adding all kinds of restrictions uh, through federal regulations or otherwise, you make them less accountable to those they serve, and that in turn translates to higher rates of crime, particularly violent crime. We've got to be very careful of that. One area where I think we can make a difference is by clarifying the standards for what's known as qualified immunity. Uh, qualified immunity is a, a doctrine that's been created by the courts uh, to protect police officers from suit uh, uh, under a federal law called 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. Um, the, we need to clarify those standards, which right now are just judge-made, and they've never been codified. I think if we clarified them, that could be good for people on uh, at every end of the, the, the continuum of these arguments. I think police officers could benefit from it, and so could advocates for those who have suffered as a result of police misconduct. Uh, and I think that uh, recognizing that and understanding uh, some of those basic things. Uh, I, I know a lot of the conversation nationally today is is in just kind of the big sweeping bill, the big sweeping reform. 
but but to your point, Senator, that if we if you can target some of these things in terms of uh, the qualified immunity, some of those things where I think there is broad agreement, uh, is this another example of where we're just swinging too big and too broad on some you know fifteen hundred two thousand page bill where maybe some targeted action by Congress uh, could be much more efficient and and deliver some real results. Yeah, I think this is one of many areas where if we focus in on things that uh, that we know that we can pass and that we know are by necessity federal anyway, I think we're going to be much better off. The longer you make something, uh, the greater the chance that you're stepping into an area where you don't belong. But as much as anything, you, you also run the risk of it not passing at all. I'd much rather see us... Um, uh, uh, swing in a very narrow space, and uh, we, we can get bipartisanship if we narrow this thing appropriately. Oh, wonderful. I know this is, uh, has been a, a real critical piece, uh, both in terms of the criminal justice reform, the police reform, uh, have been uh, on your mind and, and on your heart a lot uh, over the, the past couple of years, for sure. Uh, but throughout your career, I know you were up in uh, Ogden last year, delivered uh, really a, a landmark speech uh, give us just a, a little sense of where you think we've come since then. Well, okay, so it was just about a year ago. Uh, today's the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And um, uh, one year ago, next week, it'll be a year since I spoke on the Senate floor and celebrated what had happened in Ogden. Uh, in, in Ogden, uh, the people of Ogden uh, showed up and showed the rest of the country that the tragedy doesn't have to be the catalyst for division. We had a lot of people in Ogden coming together to honor the memory of George Floyd and simultaneously to call for nationwide police reform. And they did so in a spirit of unity. It wasn't a divisive event designed to make people choose between police and protesters. Those who gathered also came independently uh, and simultaneously to honor the memory of Ogden police officer Nathan Lighty, who, who was 24 years old at the time he was killed, 15 months on the job, and, and had been killed on May 28th while responding to a domestic violence call. And it was during that speech, I quoted um, the activist uh, and organizer for that event, Malik Deo, who said, quote, this is a peaceful protest. This is not an anti-cop rally. This is a solidarity rally. And I've been inspired uh, by those words ever since then. And I think it's a good time to reflect on the fact that the people of the city of Ogden did it right. And it's in that in that spirit, in a spirit of of solidarity uh, peacefulness and not being anti-cop, um, that I think we can really accomplish a lot of good. Yeah, so important. And uh, one one more great example of the, the Utah model working, uh, and I love the way you frame that, Senator, that uh, tragedy doesn't have to be the beginning of division, uh, but it can be the beginning of healing. Uh, so important. Utah Senior Senator Mike Lee, appreciate you joining us on Inside Sources today. Always appreciate your perspective perspective, especially on these critical areas of criminal justice reform and police reform on a day like today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Boyd. Much to think about in there. I love this idea that tragedy does not have to be the beginning of division. Tragedy can be the beginning of healing, and it can lead us towards unity. Think about that. Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. 
two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.